Hey everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. Today we are in lesson number four of our four-part series on the prodigal son parable. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio today by Pastor Eric, Pastor John, and guys, uh, this is going to be good because what we've been doing in this in this series so far is talking about, number one, we talked about the prodigal son and that whole story. Then we talked about how the true, ki- the, the real hero of the story of the, is the father, who was even more prodigal than the son, because prodigal means wastefully extravagant. So we see that the father is extravagant, wastefully extravagant when his son comes home. And then last week we talked about the elder brother, and we found out that it's not just rule breakers who are far from God, rule keepers can also be far from God. Last time we talked about some signs, some marks, if you might be a rule keeper who's far from God. Not every rule keeper is far from God, but some of them are. And, and the older brother was. In fact, last week we left the older brother kind of, he's on the outside, he's, he's not, he doesn't join the party. And so today we thought, well, we wanted, we wanted to make sure to get real practical with our final installment in this series because we wanted to talk about what to do if you have a prodigal in your life who hasn't come back yet, right? You've tried to speak love, truth and love to, the, to, your, to that prodigal, to that lost son or daughter or friend or parent or brother or sister or whatever, and they haven't come back. Because we know probably a lot of people throughout this series have had real broken hearts as they, as they have listened to this series, wondering if, if maybe possibly their prodigal could ever come home. And so what we're going to do today, just as we, we're going to talk about five real practical things. Eric, I'm excited about this for you because um, you've done this in your life. You, you, you really took the lead on, on this thing. I, I'll be honest, I couldn't have written this because I think you've experienced this differently and you've helped a lot of people with this. And that's why I'm, we're going to be leaning on your expertise in this area. You have been a prodigal, but you've also helped many prodigals come back. Right, and so you're going to be helpful. Yeah, yeah. I've I, well, I've been a prodigal, so I'm I'm an expert sinner, and I know how to <laughs> I know how to guide other sinners back to the, on the same path that I followed back to the Father, back to God. And so today, yeah, we'll really be kind of practically a- applying this story, and we're going to evaluate: um, Are we the Father, or are we the brother? when we have a prodigal in our lives, uh, when we have someone who's wandered from God or, or is lost or just living in sin or struggling with an addiction or struggling with relational issues, whatever it is, how are we going to react? How are we going to love them? Maybe, maybe you're listening right now and you've already tried to speak truth. You've tried to say things. You thought that that was going to help them and maybe it didn't turn out so well. And so... Today, we're just going to say, well, maybe there's a different approach. Maybe there's an approach we can learn from the prodigal son story in Luke 15. And so we'll get into those five points. Yeah, and the first one, I, I really appreciate this, Eric, because, you know, going through a, some of the AA steps to, for the AA series with you, uh, this first one reminds me of some of those first steps in AA. Number one, if you're trying to help the prodigal come home, number one, I think it's important for you to be honest about your brokenness first, right? Because there's some people who are listening who honestly can't be empathetic toward the the prodigal friend or brother or sister or parent or whatever in their life because they're not even aware of their own brokenness. So it's hard for them to even put themselves in the shoes of the prodigal. Hmm. 
Yeah. Hey, I want to jump in here. Right. I'm I'm John Swan, by the way, everyone. Uh, first first time on the podcast in, in a, a long while. I think the first podcast you guys did, you were talking about some addiction issues, maybe. And mm-hmm. you, you happened to mention that there was a guy who was addicted to Diet Coke on the staff. Oh, that you're was that me, guy. everyone. That was me, everyone. And, and you know what? I've uh, I've had some victory in that area. I'll just <laughs> let you guys know. Thank you. But prodigal. actually, on, on this point, I was wondering about actually, Brian, you, because you know, Eric mentioned he's been a prodigal. I certainly had that period in my life where I was really rebellious and, and wanted away from God. But I knew I do know your story. You know, mm-hmm. you've shared before that you came to Christ as an, at an early age. And so I'm just wondering in terms of your own experience, how did you come to that place of knowing you were broken and how to relate maybe to the broken person? Yeah, for me, it was it many at, throughout different points in my life, I've had to be honest about that. I think I've had to recognize that I do have a little bit of that Pharisee in me, that older brother in me, that I can be maybe on the outside, I don't come across judgmentally, but on the inside, I'm, I'm judging people. On the inside, and probably a lot of people can relate to that. They're pretty good at at the, at the words that they use, but their hearts truly are judgmental because you think you're better than someone else. So I'll be I'll be honest. For many for many years, because I was a good kid, I thought I was better than other. I did think I was better than other people. In fact, I have an older brother who was a prodigal, and I and I did. I, I and mean, we prayed for him and. But in my heart, I think in my heart of hearts, I, I was like, I'm, I'm better than him. Mm-hmm. So I can relate certainly to the older brother here um, because I've over time I had to realize I'm just as I need just as much grace as my older brother did. I need just as much grace as anyone, because when you think about degrees of sin, it's just it's kind of silly if you think right. about my sin compared to someone else's sin and then compare that to the holiness of God. Like, we're, yeah, we're not, yeah. I'm not even close. I think that's a great point, though, that the holiness of God is this great equalizer, because I think for so many people, they look at sin at the horizontal level, like mm-hmm. my sin up against your sin, and I'm a little better, better than you. You've gone down this road. It's called all, caused all, the, all this destruction. Well, I've only told little white lies or whatnot, which is probably not true anyway. But um, and then when you put your sin up against God, and you go, oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. you know, the most hideous sin there is is to not trust God, mm-hmm. and when you when you put yourself there, it equalizes you and it helps you have that attitude of, of uh, you know, understanding your own brokenness, understanding that 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 old cliche by the grace of God there go I, mm-hmm. um, because we're we're all broken, we're all sinners, right? The Bible says that right that we we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, right? And so that means we've all missed the mark and. So, you know, anyone who, you know, knows any of us in this room knows that we all need grace, right? So, Brian, I don't want you to feel bad about yourself. I know that you're a sinner and (laughs) saved by grace, too. Amen, brother. (laughs) Right? And so, um, but that's really the, what we're getting to in this point is a famous quote from from Jesus in Luke 6, uh, 41 through 42. He says this, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And, you know, Jesus is really saying that in the earshot of people like the older brother, the Pharisees, and he's basically, 
He's already made it clear that all of us have sinned, even the most religious holy people, the people that might live really good and straight, narrow lives, like still are struggling with hitting the mark of God's standard because we're all born in, in sin, you know? And so Jesus puts us on equal playing ground as human beings. And so therefore, he's saying... Uh, before you start going around trying to correct other people like the prodigal in your life, before you start doing that, evaluate what where are your blinders at? Like, what are you seeing, or what can't you see because of your pride? Huh? Mm. Yeah. But all, but also, and this is what I love about I love this passage because it does say that. But it do, it it does still say the reason you should get rid of the log in your eye is so that you can help them get the speck out of your eye. So we're. I want to make sure that our listeners understand that we're not saying in this lesson, don't ever speak the truth to anyone. Right. Well, how dare you speak the truth to someone because you're a sinner? No, you you should you should deal with your own sin, recognize your own brokenness first, so that you can really truly help the prodigal. You're not just recognizing your brokenness so that you can all just stay broken and prodigal and lost and far from God. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I was thinking about that when we were looking at this this story and um, just thinking about how that is the temptation, especially in our day and age, where the, the, the most atrocious sin you can commit against anyone is to say something that might offend them oh, that's a good and point. hurt their feelings, yeah. and they can kind of stick that flag in the moral high ground and say, wait a minute, you can't go there, but yet we look at Jesus telling these stories. If you read chapter mm-hmm. Luke chapter 14, 15, he's saying things to people that are literally taking offense at what he's saying. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good point. One more verse, and then let's go to the second point, Colossians three thirteen. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must you must forgive others. So remember that when you think about the prodigal in your life, remember, just call to mind that you're a sinner as well. It really is a great first step because there's other steps to take. But I think if you don't take this first step, then you're never going to have the right. You're not going to have that attitude check that you need when you do start dealing with someone who's actively struggling. Because the assumption here is that you're not actively struggling. You're following God. You love Jesus. You're reading your Bible. You're going to church. You're, you've got a good prayer life. I hope that's what's going on. But there's someone in your life that is far from God, and it breaks your heart. So remember, in the sight of God, you're broken too, because that will impact all the rest of these steps and the attitude that you have with the rest of these steps. Yeah, and in working with other people, the best way that I've got people to open up and start on the path towards repentance, um, being humble themselves, um, is being open and honest about my own struggles, whether they're current or in the past. You know, nothing helps a person open up than by the other person just being real, authentic, and honest, because people are scared. They're wondering you know, sitting across the room from someone, whether you're mentoring someone or, or it's a family member or a friend or whatever, is what are they thinking of me right now? Are they thinking that they're so much higher and greater and above me? Um, but when you can level the playing ground, like I said, and tell them, look, look, I struggled with this too. Yeah. Now I want to help you. Yeah. yeah, I think it's also helpful not only to be honest and vulnerable about your own struggles, but then to be honest about how you have received this forgiveness from Christ that we we just read about, and how uh, that same forgiveness you're you're willing to extend toward toward them, because mm-hmm. there's nothing, pastor. There's nothing that I think, um, boy, really 
at least for me personally, that really kind of strikes me when I'm in conversation with someone and they say, and you guys have heard this too, I, I'm sure they'll, they'll say something like, you know, so-and-so did this and I just can't, I, I can never forgive them for X, Y, Z. And you go, Ooh, then you might not quite understand what mm-hmm. Jesus has done for you. Yeah. Right. And like Eric said, that might be what people are thinking. They, they might have this narrative going in their mind that you're not, you can't relate to this because you're, you're not prodigal. You haven't walked away like, like I have. So for them to hear that from you, that, look, I love you. I, I'm broken too. I'm a sinner too. We're all, in, we're all in the same boat. Now, Eric, the second one we're going to need some help from you on because some listeners aren't going to be familiar with this, but I think it's so good. And there's so much, there's so much to take from this. This is, I remember you saying something like this a few months ago at one of our pastor meetings, and I thought, man, maybe that guy is smart after all. You said this. <laughs> Point number two is to break the crazy cycle. Now, you're, you're going to explain that here in a second, but it's all about being the one to absorb the offense. So help us with that. Yeah, so there's a concept in, in the book called Love and Respect by Emerson Egriches, and it's talking about marriage mostly, but... There's this cycle in which a person, maybe the offender, right, is hurting the other person. And so the person that is hurt then lashes out in, in response and gets angry or mad or, you know, whatever, shames and guilts the other person. So then what the other person does then is uh, does what they all always do. They go self-medicate or they continue on in their anger because they're getting defensive because of the shame and the guilt, right? And so they continue to hurt each other in this crazy cycle because both of them are reacting to each other. Mm. And so there's this cycle that's going on. And, and the point to this is that somebody's got to break the cycle. Somebody's got to step in and say, no, I'm not going to react anymore. I'm, I'm going to hold back my feelings. I'm going to absorb the offense. The offense. I'm going to take the high ground and say, you know, be like Jesus and show grace, right? And say, you know what? I am not going to continue shaming you, guilting you, or causing whatever is happening to you to keep you falling back into the hole that you're in. I'm going to stop the cycle. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's very biblical, obviously, because the the greatest example of this uh, breaking the crazy cycle is the cross, right? Jesus stepped in to absorb right. in a very real way uh, the punishment for our sin. And then um, I was just looking at Luke chapter 14, uh, verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, you know, we, we are to be this, um, this, have the same attitude, the same posture toward others who may sin against us. Romans 15, 1 and 2, it says, this is the ESV, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So it's interesting because this passage, the strong and the weak, you know, the context for this was, you know, some people in the church had a had kind of a weak conscience toward food sacrificed to idols, and other people in the church, namely the Gentiles, didn't have that weak conscience. And it was, I always thought it was funny that the, the strong one is actually the Gentile. It's not the Jew. It's not the one who thinks... The Jew is the one who thought he had the right information about it, but actually he was being legalistic about it. But Paul's point is actually to speak to the Gentile and say, if you're the strong one, Gentiles, if you're the ones who you get it, 
you get that that this this problem uh, of e- of eating meat sacrificed to idols is really not a problem because an idol is not really a thing, so it's not that big of a deal. Don't be legalistic. But his whole point is actually to have deference for the for the Jewish person, for the weak person. But the principle then really can be applied in every situation that the bigger per it's kind of a bigger person principle. Mm-hmm. The bigger person is willing to absorb the offense. The bigger person is willing to say, I'm I'm gonna absorb that offense instead of just having my feelings hurt or or engaging in this crazy cycle with you so that we're nobody we're never ever getting out of this pattern of relating to Yeah, because I think that the mature one has this ob- obligation that the Bible gives us is that we're supposed to be like Christ. Christ was the ultimate one in maturity and faith, right? He's the example. And Christ, when he was on the cross, says, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? And, and so if we're going to be and claim to be mature Christians and try to call other people to repentance and try to, you know, hold other people accountable— we we can't just have that side to us, you know, that can be misconstrued as legalism. We've also got to have the grace of God. You see, God has all these wonderful attributes, right? He's got grace, he's got love, he's got justice, he's got wrath, like, and he, ha- he uses them all perfectly. Us as Christians, we struggle with the, our attributes as Christians. You know, we'll, we'll give more to one than the other, but the the more mature believer ought to be the one to say, I'm going to break the cycle here. Um, I'm going to create an environment where the weaker brother or sister can actually flourish. And how do we flourish as Christians? In my own life, I flourished by understanding the grace of God. Mm. When there was an abundance of forgiveness for me, of, of mercy, I finally came to my senses like the prodigal son, right? And I was like, wow, this just doesn't makes sense. Why would he be so good to me? I feel free to run to him, Mm -hmm. right? I feel free to go to God because he's not holding things against me. He's not, he's not judging me in the sense that, uh, you know, I'm a bad person and I just need to clean myself up. He's saying, come to me and I will clean you up. I love you. I'm going to forgive you. And so in the same way then, as we're talking about how we react to prodigals in our own life, how can we be Christ to the prodigals in our lives? It's got to be through this environment that we create where we break the cycle of reacting all the time. And I know it's hard because we have feelings. We're human beings and we have emotions and we react to them but this is where if we're going to call ourselves the mature believers, then we ought to learn how to be able to control those emotions and lay down our lives, take up our cross, like you said, John, and be able to love people even when they're not loving us. Yeah, and I, I think many, many families, many moms and dads who have prodigal children, really what they end up doing, I don't think they mean to, but what they end up doing is burning a bridge with their kids because because they don't respond with grace, with kindness, with love, with joy, with peace, with, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. They respond with judgmentalism. I mean, and for good reason, right? If their kid's screwing up, I mean, I get it. I understand what the parents are thinking. But but if you're, if you're not careful, you create an environment that when, if and when the kid ever does come to his senses or her senses, the last place they want to go is to return home because there's, they've got nothing for them at home. Because 
mom and dad never never extended that grace, or at least they don't think they're going to extend that grace. So that's always a hard part, right? Is because some people are going to say, "Well, wait, is that is that enabling them? Mm. Am, am I is that an enabling behavior?" That actually is our third point: is don't be an enabler. Mm. And these two seem like they might. They're probably in small group or with your mentor, you might need to talk a little bit about this distinction in your particular situation. Where do I cross the line and actually start enabling somebody? Hmm. Yeah, that, that, um, I think that requires a lot of prayer because I think that is a fine line there. Um, and, and sometimes, um, you know, you might have to do the thing that seems a little bit more legalistic, uh, or, or harsh, Hmm. um, to, that might be the best way to love someone because I mean I think we're we're all our default is all set toward right going towards what is comfortable and we want that for the people we love in our lives too and when we see them headed toward this path of destruction we want to step in and control and stop it but sometimes that's not the best way to go right mm-hmm. I can think of a, a, a situation where my brother um, and his name's Teddy. Teddy, if you ever listen to this, uh, I know you'd be okay with me sharing this. Um, but uh, he was about 21, 20. I was around 28 or so. And uh, we were living together. I had, I had been on my journey with Christ. He had not so much. And I, I just wanted him so badly to get it. And he was living with me in the same apartment. And uh, I'll, I'll just go right to the, the short version of the story. Ultimately, I had to kick him out. Mm. Now, our relationship didn't, wasn't severed. But I, I couldn't, uh, before a holy God, continue to enable him in this behavior that was causing a lot of destruction in his life. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, my brother and I are, are the best of friends. I love him dearly and, and loved him then, too. But that was the, the best course of action that I could come up with in, in my own uh, seeking God for answers at that time. Yeah, and so we're not saying let people walk all over you, Uh right? We're saying speak truth, continue to do that, right? But don't do it so much so that you think that you're controlling the situation, and also don't allow it to cause you to become codependent. And I I really uh, like the verse for this. I I think it fits. It says, Galatians Galatians 6.1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin... You who are godly, again, it's that kind of idea of being mature. You who are mature should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful, though, not to fall into the same temptation yourself or to fall into any kind of sin yourself while restoring someone. And so I think there's a sense in which when we're trying to restore someone or to get someone back on the right path, we can't be doing it in, in a heart of pride. Right, we can't be saying, um, you know what, you just need to come to my level, and until you come to my level, you're out. Right, that's not going to save anyone. It says, you who are more godly should gently and hum- humbly restore someone, but don't go to such the great extreme that you think that you're the person for the job. That it has to be you. Like in my own life, or in people's lives that I've worked with. Um, I could I could speak truth all day long to a person, and it was like it was going in one ear and out the other. But then they go and sit in church and hear it from another pastor or hear it from a small group leader or another friend, and they're like, you know, they'll come tell me, hey, I heard this this principle <laughs> the other day, and I'm like, I've been telling you that this entire time, you know? And I think it's because we're not always the right person to try to correct someone, right? Yeah. They, they've probably tuned us out, especially if we're that family member, if we're that spouse. 
that has been constantly maybe nagging, um, then they might tune us out and not listen anymore. And so we've got to be humble enough to say, well, I hope they get this, right? I hope yeah. I've done enough. Yeah, that it reminds me of a time in my life. There was, uh, it was uh, some family members I was really zealous over uh, winning them for the Lord. And I remember just it was consuming my thoughts. And, uh, you know, we, in our conversations and whatnot, it was causing all this tension. And I was driving down the road thinking of, of them. And I literally uh, felt as though the Lord interrupted my thoughts. And I heard him say, They're not yours, they're mine. And I just went, whoa, okay, okay, God, like, like what you know. And I think pride is part of that, mm-hmm. right? We get wrapped up. We want the glory, and uh, we got to step back and let God be God. Yeah, that's step four. Stop trying to control every outcome, mm-hmm. because, like you said, Eric, you, you or even John, what God said to you, you might not be the one to get through. I mean, think about the prodigal son story. Who, who was there when the son came to his senses? It was the pig, I think. <laughs> it was the pig. Yeah, that's it. The, the older brother wasn't there. The father wasn't even there. So you might not be the one. It might God might use a pig. God might use a donkey. God, you don't know who God's going to yeah, use. It might not point. be you, right? So you, you, And I think that's important, especially for parents. I think this is a good message to parents who have kids who've wandered, is you, you can't. You can't control your kids. You can't make choices for them. If God can't make choices for his children, what makes us as parents think we can make choices for our kids? God doesn't even have that. Well, I guess he has that power if he wanted to, but he doesn't ever exercise it. He doesn't make anyone. He doesn't drag people to follow him. He invites them. He doesn't try to control them. He let the son go. He didn't try to control the outcome. Again, some of us cringe when we think at the beginning of the story why would you give him money? It seems like you're enabling him. Why would you give him money? Why would you let him be? And, and maybe, maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's more to that story, right? That, that, that the father, the father wanted, to, wanted to still be alive when the son made this bad decision, right? Yeah, and I think this speaks to the wisdom of the father. Uh, I think in the, the prodigal son story, the father is actually pointing back to God the father, right? And God is, you know, all-knowing, right? And so in God's attribute of being all-knowing, um, yeah, he has the power and authority to do whatever he wants in anyone's life if he wants to. And and in this situation, the way it seems that God works is He allows people to be accountable for their own decisions. And so the, the son makes his own decision, a bad decision, to go and squander, right? To go squander his wealth and everything. But the father, in his wisdom, knows how it's going to turn out. He knows that. And so he's secure. He's like, I, I know what's going to happen. Um, you're going to come back to me and you're going to learn a very valuable lesson. And so he does let him go. And and in a sense, you could say, man, like the father doing that was um, reckless. That's not the, the prodigal part when, when referring to father, the father was, was extravagant in accepting him back and running and, and loving him back, but not necessarily in letting him go. He knew ultimately that God's in control and, and he's going to allow his son to learn a lesson. 
Um, he had that security. Now, for us, we're finite. We don't have the all-knowing power of God, but what we do have is trust in a God who knows everything. So when we let our kids, right, like I have a teenager right now whom I've tried to control for many of many of the years of his life. I didn't want him to fall. I didn't want him to be a prodigal like I was, so I I tried in fear, I think, to try to control so many things, and it's exhausting, first of all, to say say the least as a parent, to try to just see what your kid's doing all the time. But what does that say about my faith in God? Like, how big do I think the Father is? How big do I think God is? If, if He allowed me to go through all the things that I went through in my life, and somehow I made it back to Him because I knew of His goodness, then if my own son, if he was to go out there and do those th- same things, do I just believe, well, again, this is a pride thing. It's like, it's almost as if I believe that oh, well, I was good enough and smart enough, but I don't know that my son will be, so he's going to need my extra special care and attention to make sure that that doesn't happen. But ultimately, we as parents and and people in general with prodigals, we have to trust them unto the Lord. Yeah, why is it, Eric, I've noticed in, in my experience with a lot of Christian parents, it's funny, is the prodigals who had a who maybe made some poor choices earlier in their mm. life when they in the, but now they're christian parents and trying to raise their kids to love jesus i've noticed that they tend to be more controlling of their kids than people like me who didn't do that it, i've always chalked it up to maybe just ignorance i don't know what i don't know and so maybe i'm a little bit naive but maybe there's something more to it there right you're you're trying to con- you, maybe it is a trust thing is you need maybe i do need to be a little less naive but maybe you need to be a little bit more people like you need to be a little bit more trusting in God. Yeah, and I think that, well, God, He's the best teacher. He is the ultimate disciple-maker, and Jesus was the one who first made disciples, you know, to follow the true Father. And, and, and God is teaching me lessons every single day of my life. I mean, and so when I think about my failures and my being a little bit over-controlling or codependent, my fear, um, I get these flashbacks of like what my childhood used to be like and, and how I turned out and, you know, how gracious my parents were to me. And, and so I was like, I knew I could freely go back to them at any point and they'd love me no matter what. And, um, that grace ultimately led, led me back to God. And so, uh, God's teaching me a lesson in all of this. And I, I think that that's what he's, teaching um, us partly in that that prodigal son story is that the father has enough wisdom to know that the son will ultimately not be able to resist the goodness of the father. So he's going to come back. And when he does, it's going to be a party. Yeah. Well, and the, and the father allowed his son to, to go through some pain and suffering, right? And it's the age-old question, why does a, a loving God allow people mm-hmm. to suffer? And uh, we're, we're certainly not going to answer that question in this podcast here today, but, but one, one, one reason is, well, uh, he, he redeems it. He can redeem that pain. Mm-hmm. He can redeem that suffering because he uses it to um, help, help prodigals come back to their senses and, and come running back to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's true in my own life for sure. And I think, you know, that's just our tendency when we try to control is to, is to we want so badly, like Eric with you and your son, or even, you know, I think of my kids, we want so badly to protect them from all of that, right? If they, oh, if they would just know what we know. But sometimes they're going to have to learn 
the hard way and we can just pray that it happens under our roof um, and, and we can guide them. Uh, and just like, you know, the prodigal uh, in the story, the father who, um, you know, like Pastor Brian said, gave him the money when he was still, when he was still alive and, and he still had an opportunity to speak into his life. Yeah. Yeah. I would say to parents listening out there, I, I say this to parents all the time, don't control them so much that by the t- when they turn 18, they've never had the, ever the opportunity to make any decisions for themselves, and now they go off to college. And so many times, that's when kids just go off the rails. Because, and, and the problem with that is the parents aren't there anymore a lot of times to help. I would much rather, when our kids were younger, I wanted, to, I wanted them to go to school. I wanted them to have struggles and trials so that they could come home when they were 13 and 14 and 15 and process that with mom and dad. We were there to help them think it through while that was still our job. Now, not, not that we can't help them think it through now that they're a little bit older, but we're not there every day for them. So I would encourage parents, don't, you know, helicopter, the helicopter parenting, I get it. I get why people do it, but it doesn't work. At some point, you have to release them. At some point, you have to let them go. And it, better to let them go and make some I think, make some of their own choices, and sometimes they're going to be bad choices while they're still living under your roof and you can still speak into it. Yeah, and, and again, we're not saying, you know, give your kids free reign to do whatever they want whenever they want. Obviously, the Bible commands parents to right. train up our kids, right? Disciple them, train them up in the way they should go, and but we shouldn't worry about that. Jesus says, you know, don't worry, right? And so many, many times I've heard Christians say, it is a sin to worry. And like you were saying earlier, John, you know, this is, this is where we need to pray, right? We need to pray for the wisdom to be able to handle these situations and to understand. And that reminds me of the serenity prayer, um, which goes like this. It says, God, grant me the serenity, which is the opposite of, of worry, is peace. That's what serenity means. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That's other persons, places, and things. And then it says, the courage to change the things I can, that's me. I can only change me. And the wisdom to know the difference, right? And so that serenity prayer is, I've seen it on fridge magnets. We've used it in recovery group. Um, it's not solely for recovery, actually. There was a guy who, who wrote it. He was a, you know old theologian back in the 1940s. But the serenity prayer really teaches us that we can't control anything outside of ourselves, and we need the wisdom to accept that. We need to have peace knowing that we can't control everyone else, but we can control how we react. I, I really feel like this really resonates with, with our topic today, which we're talking about. How are we going to respond to a prodigal? How do we love them? That's what we have control over. Mm. We don't have control over what they do, how much, how far they go, how much they sin, and who they hurt. We have control how we react. Yeah, and and Eric, I just got to say I'm feeling awfully convicted right now because I think what I hear you saying is I should stop trying to help you with your golf swing. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, only when I ask. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Nobody can control that. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to enable you anymore, buddy. All right? Okay, well, speak the truth in love, right? But just... All right, we got one more thing, the final thing, and it really should have been the first thing, to be honest. Right. But the final thing is pray that God would do what it takes to change their heart, mm. right? You aren't the Holy Spirit. I mean, God might use your words. Yeah, you should speak the truth in love. You should be gracious, all these things. 
But at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit is the, the Holy Spirit is the one who draws and, and convicts. The prodigal son was sitting with the pigs. It doesn't really say it there, but the kind of the sense that you get when it says he came to his senses is there was conviction in his heart, mm-hmm. and that kind of conviction only comes by the Holy Spirit working in the heart of a prodigal. And we're all prodigals. We're all lost. We're all wanderers. And, and so one of the greatest, simplest things you can do is to pray. Pray that God would do what only he can do to change their heart. Yeah, that, you know, really reminds me of what you just said is, I mean, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And and thinking back on that story and a lot of the points we've already covered, but the son was in the muck and the mire, but he remembered the goodness of God. And whatever it was, now, now we believe as Christians, we believe that it's the Holy Spirit's job to um, draw people to repentance, to remind them that they're sinners and that they need God. Everyone needs to be given grace to be able to accept Jesus Christ, you know, as their Lord and Savior. And so that's not necessarily covered in the prodigal son story, but it just says he came back to his senses. But you get a little deeper theologically, and and it's God there. The goodness of God um, reminded him that he was a sinner and he needed to go back to be with his father in in the kingdom, right? To go be with the king. And so and remember in the story if you remember back to what happened right before he was eating with the pigs. Number 1, he blew all his money on wild living, which he could control, but number 2, there was a great great famine in the land, mm. which he couldn't control. So so even I mean there's even a sense that God can use stuff like that yeah. that even you know obviously beyond the the prodigals, the prodigal made poor choices. But even beyond that, he had some bad luck in life as well with the famine at the just kind of at the wrong time. And on the outside, you know, if, if the dad knew about it, he might have he might have thought, oh, that's terrible. I don't want my my son to go through that kind of suffering. But but the reality is it was good. And that's part of I think that's part of what we need to do as parents is pray that really honestly pray that God would do whatever it takes. Parents, stop praying that God would protect your kids you know, from making a stupid mistake. Maybe you need to pray, let them experience the pain and the discipline that comes along with that. Maybe you need to stop praying that they don't get, you know, sent to jail. Maybe that's exactly what they need. I'm right? going to keep praying that, but go. <laughs> you, well, you can. <laughs> yeah, but well. you, you see what I'm saying? Like, I yeah, think sometimes no, I parents are praying, they're praying a hedge of protection around their kids. I get that. Again, I understand that. But sometimes you need to, you need to stop praying prayers that, that are tying God's hands, so to speak. Like, mm. what if God wants them to experience the famine? What if what if he wants them to eat with the pigs? Lord, please don't let my kid eat with the pig. No, maybe mm-hmm. that's just what they need. Right? Yeah, if you go and survey the entire Bible, all the great men and women of faith in the Bible, you're going to find that there were some hard stories that led them to their faith moment. I mean, you know, Paul was knocked knocked to the ground and blinded and humbled, and there's just so many stories of of people who had to hit their bottom, basically. Like, they had to be humbled, right? It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. They had to be humbled, and in order for a person to be humbled, they have to have humble uh, a humble situation, right? And and what that usually entails is something like, like him, you know, he's lost everything, he's broken all of his relationships and he's basically dug himself a hole. He's at rock bottom as so many people 
say it. And that's usually what I've heard it said before. When you've hit your bottom, the only place to look is up, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, to look, and oftentimes God lets us, causes us, or helps us to get to that bottom so that we'll eventually come to our senses and come back to him. And, and that, you know, speaks to the idea that our, our kids and we ourselves had to learn it for ourselves. We can't have faith for everyone else. We can only have faith for ourselves, right? Everybody else has to come to the realization and knowledge of their need for God, just like we did. And so we got to let God ultimately do the work in them. Um, and I have a really... Um, encouraging verse that I want to share, because if your kid or your friend or whatever ever professed faith in Christ, but they seem to have left or walked away, um, Philippians 1.6 says this, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, we don't know how it all is going to look. I mean, my own life story, I, I sometimes question, when was I saved? You know, like, because at a young age, I believed in Jesus. You know, at a, at a young age, I was baptized at 10 years old, and uh, I loved the stories of the Bible, and I believe I knew the gospel. But somehow, I, I went to go live a life that would not that a Christian shouldn't have been living. You know, I went the wrong way. I went to live for my own desires, for my own passions, stuck in addiction, hurt everyone, broke relationships, lost everything that I had. Um, and then finally, I came to my senses, understanding the goodness and grace and love of God through Jesus Christ. And, and I wonder, like, how did how did that all work like that, you know? Like, shouldn't it, a person comes to faith in Christ when they, at church, right? Shouldn't they just, they're living, they're living a normal life, they come and they're like, oh yeah, I'll accept Christ, raise my hand, go down to the front aisle, and okay, life's going to be great from you from now on, and, and that's not what happened with me, and I don't mm -hmm. think that's what happens with anybody who mm -hmm. comes into our churches or anybody who I've ever shared the gospel with. It's usually some kind of pain and trial or humbling that had to happen to get to a person get to a person to say look you know what i can't do this on my own i need god right mm. yeah i i want to tie this into something that's really uh important to us at alpine and that's mentoring you know i read this verse here in hebrews uh, 12 2 it says um and it's, this speaks to god's uh god's his power in all of this but also uh, his motivation, and I like this here. It says, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the places of honor besides God's throne. God's throne. And and this kind of goes back and ties into point one as well, this this idea of absorbing the the pain a little bit, right? Why do we do it? Why do we mentor? Why do we step into people's lives who may be uh, on their prodigal journey even? And mm. and you know, they um I know you guys have had the, had this experience where that you know they're, they're committed and then all of a sudden they're not committed, mm -hmm. right? And you, you think, what am I doing wrong? But it's it's for that joy set before us that we get to take part mm. in the in the privilege of what God working in their lives and that we could continue to speak 
the truth in, in love to people. I mean, our first point was you've tried that. It hasn't worked. What do you do? Well, you keep doing it. You keep doing it with the right posture, not from a position of pride, but from a position of, of humility that says, again, there by the grace of God go I, and you continue to speak truth and love into people's life. If it's an unbeliever, continue to preach the gospel to them. If it's a believer, continue to preach the gospel to them and continue mm -hmm. to point them to the narrow path. Yeah, and I love those two verses that we just read because it says that he began the faith, he's going to bring it to completion, he's the uh, author or the initiator of our faith, and he's also the one who's going to perfect it. I mean, and it's really just saying God's in control of this. Like, he's in control of their faith. So yes, we can pray. We do need to remember we're not in control. I mean, all of these points that, you know, we can't be an enabler, but we should speak the truth. We should set some boundaries when, when we can and when we need to. But ultimately, um, we've got to provide the environment of grace and love um, to get to these prodigals. Well, this wraps up our series on the prodigal. And again, if you want to use these resources to talk about it with your family or your small group or in a one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationship, you can find all of it at pursuegod.org forward slash prodigal. You'll find small group videos there. You'll find these podcasts, and you'll also find discussion questions to use in those environments. Hope you do it. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope this, this parable is as life-changing for you as it has been for us. We'll see you next time.